0: This is Jeremy Robert Johnson,
1: and you are listening to Booked.
0: Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark.
1: Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. Nam Olson. The book
2: that we're going to be talking about tonight is The Croning by Laird Barron. A little bit about him. Born and raised in Alaska, he did time in the wilderness. He, raised, he raced in several Iditarods. Later, he got the hell out and migrated to Washington State where he devoted himself to American combato and reading guys like Parker, Elroy, and McCarthy. At night, he wrote tales that smash up noir, crime, and horror. He currently resides in upstate New York and is writing a novel about the evil that men do.
1: I think the author's trying to send us a message letting us know he's involved in some martial arts before we review his book. I think so. (laughs) Okay. Here's a little bit about the croning. Uh, Here's the official synopsis. Strange things exist on the periphery of our existence, haunting us from the darkness looming beyond our firelight. Black magic, weird cults, and worse things loom in the shadows. The children of Old Leech have been with us from time immemorial, and they love us. Donald Miller, geologist and academic, has walked along the edge of a chasm for most of his nearly 80 years, leading a charmed life between endearing absent-mindedness and sanity-shattering realization. Now all things must converge. Donald will discover the dark secrets along the edges, unearthing savage truths about his wife Michelle, their adult twins, and all he knows and trusts. For Donald is about to stumble on the secret of the croning. From Laird Barron, Shirley Jackson Award-winning author of the Imago Sequence and Occultation, comes *The Croning*, a debut novel of cosmic horror. All
2: right, so um, that's yeah, that's the synopsis, and and the book starts out in a really interesting way. It actually, um, it kind of jumps around in time throughout the book, and at the very beginning, you are you read essentially a retelling of the Rumplestilskin uh, fairy tale or whatever you want to call it or an interpretation of it. And it's, uh, I didn't know what to expect going into it. So, so I, I I didn't really know where it was going, but, um, the way that it was included in the book and everything was ended up being a really clever way to introduce this kind of weird ancient evil in a, in a very familiar way,
1: which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. I, I kind of a sucker for those kinds of things. Um, (laughs) you know just kind of retellings of stories or incorporating them into something much much bigger so um but yeah that's how it kicks off and i've read a little bit about the author and and some interviews and some other reviews of this book after after finishing it and uh i I don't know anything about h.p lovecraft but i I could nary find a um you know blog post that didn't um, refer to him as kind of a lovecraftian um author so uh for the what I do know about Lovecraft is that pretty much all of his books dealt with these kind of, you know, godlike beings that you know have some uh, effect or, or on or desire to to hurt humanity. So that's kind of the uh, the the gist of this book is uh, there's this group out there and they're ancient and they've been around forever and and they have uh, they have some designs on what they want to do with humanity.
2: Yep. So. um the main focus, the characters that are the main focus of the book are um, Donald Miller and his wife, Michelle Mock. And um, the Mock family is is this family that goes back for generations uh, of of people that are involved with this kind of age-old cult, which is called the Children of Old Leech. A lot of this is stuff that you find out early on, so we're not really spoiling anything. The, the weird thing about the book that... Uh, it, it kind of takes place except for this kind of snapshot at the beginning the Stiltson style story um focuses on the life of Donald Miller and um it, it takes place throughout his life from when he's younger like in the 19 like what 50s mm-hmm. um through into like 1980 and then in the present day so he you know the oldest he is in the book is in his 80s but you see as far back as like you know in the 1950s when he was you know, a young guy out you know, just out of college or whatever, so time jumps around. Um, but the main people that the main focus is seeing what Donald's involvement is with this in, in relation to this kind of cult and the darkness that they that they worship and uh how he, you know, deals with what he's seeing and
1: stuff, I guess. Should be noted, too, because you mentioned the Mock family, that the Miller family has kind of been intertwined in this since, uh, you know, basically the beginning of time, it seems as well. And um, it, the kicking off point, like I said, which was absolutely terrific. The only thing I liked is they introduced um, and again, this is, you know, page three stuff. So I'm not spoiling anything for anybody, but they introduced the Miller's son as a character during the Rumpelstiltskin part of the story. So Donald Miller's family has also been involved in some way, shape or form for, you know, forever, which I, again, something I thought was very, very cool, the kind of that family tree of involvement with, uh, you know, the mock family and the Millers and, and old leech. Mm-hmm. And,
2: and one of the big pieces of the story is that Donald's or Don, I guess for the most of the book, he's just called Don, don's um encounter with these these ancient forces and this power and everything has left his mind unreliable. There's a lot of things that he doesn't remember or he sees um in his mind out of context like he doesn't remember he thinks it's important, but he doesn't remember why and stuff like that so throughout the book, we know what happens, and we've seen what has happened in the past, but at different points he might or might not remember it and so That's how he can kind of go through his entire life, having exposure to this ancient kind of force without really fully understanding what's going on. And um, I thought that was really cool because, I mean, (laughs) just thinking about it from my own personal perspective, like how horrible is it to run across something that you didn't think existed that was terrible? But then how even more horrible to forget about it and have to keep encountering it? (laughs)
1: That's pretty creepy. It was, and, and I really liked how he, you know, as you said, as he kind of, um, you know, played with the narrative, kind of flipping back and forth in time to kind of reveal more of what's going on. I'll be honest, when I started reading this and realized that our, our protagonist is 80 years old, I, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit and I thought, oh, this is going to be a really exciting book. You know, mm-hmm. here, here's a guy who's, you know, two steps away from a wheelchair, basically, and, and he's he's going to be the the hero or, or the you know, the protagonist, at least in this book, but... Um, It was delivered. It was delivered really well.
2: Overall thoughts about the book. It's definitely, it's, it's billed as a cosmic horror. And I guess that's kind of, and I know nothing about H.P. Lovecraft, I will say right off the bat, but kind of in the stylings of like a a Lovecraft type story from what I understand. Um, And yeah, the best parts, the parts that I thought were my favorite in the book were the creepy, um, you know, things lurking out, you know, in the dark, just out of sight weird things happening that can't be explained in the house and things like that. Um, I thought we're, we're the best. He did a really good job of building up that. I mean, all right. So I was reading it at my house and if I went downstairs for a glass of water, I know I walked a little faster than I usually would that type of thing. So it was definitely having a a psychological effect on me, which I was really happy with. He, he amped up the creepy, uh, in certain spots.
1: Yeah. Very creepy indeed. Um, I read a lot of horror when I was, you know, considerably younger. And, and then it was all just for story or, or narrative or even characters because very little of it creeped me out. But this book, man, it, it gave me chills in three or four parts. And starting as early as the, the you know, what I referred to as kind of like the prologue that we were talking about, the, the Stillskin era, um, just a part in there that it just gave me chills. I mean, it was just a very well done, not overplayed horror, but very um, subversive and chilling
2: yeah totally and um not all right and so so far we've talked about cosmic horror and we've talked about the creepy scary stuff but the thing i want to emphasize is that it's written in a it's it's very literary it's not um just kind of cheap or or simple it's very smart and well written and so um uh, i'd say the plots have developed very well and the, you can tell there was a lot of thought that went into not only like what was going to happen with the characters, but the whole like mythology and, and the the memory thing and, and like the fluidity of time and stuff like that. So um, really clever way that he tied everything together. And so it's not, it's not like a simple, like quick beach read thing. It's, it's actually got a little bit
1: makes you think a little bit on top of everything else. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's a uh, meaty, meaty is how I would say it. It's, it's got, it's not your, your standard horror novel where it's, you know, it's obviously not a slasher flick and, you know it it's not uh like they don't make movies like this. This is like a type of subversive horror that you don't find in movies, which is where most people are going to be familiar with horror so it's uh it was just very well done and very creepy, and kind of the thing I thought about and you said literary, and again, I want to echo what you said earlier I don't know anything about Lovecraft, so I, I just kind of when I was done with this book, I just kind of closed it and thought you know this isn't my thing. Okay, so I'm saying it's not my thing. It's not what I normally choose to read or whatever. But the book kind of had like an important feel to it. Like the book itself was important, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah. The only thing um, the only uh, issue I had with it, and this could just be my simple brain, um, there were a lot of characters introduced through the course of the book, and I really had trouble following who some of those people were, keeping up with them. And, and none of them, I shouldn't say none of them, most of them weren't really important characters. There were people that you know he met in passing or his wife mentioned or whatever, but I found myself kind of having trouble keeping keeping track of them.
2: I could see that, and, and especially with certain characters, and I, this might be a little spoilery, but certain characters appear in different ways throughout the book. I think I can be that vague, but still kind mm-hmm. of get my point across so that it, it does get a little, you have to pay attention. So, um and actually one of the things that I thought was, I get a little, um I, I guess, turned off for, for stories sometimes when um it seems like everybody's big and important in some way. And I know that like, <laughs> and obviously the Don Miller and Michelle mock are important because they're like the main characters in the book. And like, you know, their, their lineage is, is, integral to the whole story. But what I'm saying is like everybody that, so they, you know, the main characters themselves have all these degrees and are prominent in their fields and everything. And everybody they know is like, you know, this rich person or they've, they've got the, you know, like the circles they run in it is just a bunch of really rich, really well-established people with big connections and stuff like that. And like reading and that's fine, but reading about that for like essentially every character That, um, that is introduced after a while. It just grates at me a little bit. I'm like, all right, fine. I understand. He's got a, you know, a PhD in this and let's just move on and and tell me why they're there. So there was a bit of that, which I thought, you know, could have been trimmed down a little bit, but, um, I think that was the, well, the only thing I had that was an objection about the book.
1: Yeah. And, and those are the people I specifically was thinking of for, in most instances, I was like, I, I don't, I can't even follow who this person is. You know, they pop up in conversation later and I just had to assume it was one of the you know cocktail <laughs> cocktail party people, you know, it kind of how I segregated them in my mind. So, yeah. So I'm glad it wasn't just my feeble mind that that uh, couldn't pick all that up. So
2: yeah. one of the other things that I want to say is that, um, and, and Livius touched on this a little bit before about the, it, it's an important thing. Like he builds like in my mind, a, a pretty good mythology of of you know these ancient you know beings or whatever without um getting too heavy into getting mired in the details of of this mythology um and it's very much in this tradition of like a larger than life kind of bad guy like things that we are you know are beyond our human comprehension kind of thing but i that's tough you know tough to do without overdoing it and i thought he did that just Right. Where we got really good glimpses of the mythology kind of just like interwoven into, you know, what was happening, kind of the day to day life of, of these people. So I thought that was really good
1: um, writing style overall. I know you mentioned it was well written, but is there anything specific you liked about it? Um, it makes you feel real. It felt like I was reading
2: about someone that actually exists, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I'm reading about Don Miller and I'm thinking this could have been anybody. And I and I. I like that in a book it really makes you feel like the situation is believable. And especially in a horror situation, all the more important. Cause like if I think, Oh, this, you know, this could be me in this house. And then suddenly some crazy shit's happening to that dude. I'm like, Oh man, this could be me. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I liked.
1: How about you? Um, Yeah. I, you know, kind of same thing. It's I mentioned earlier is, you know, at first I kind of, uh, you know, I thought oh got our, our main characters 80 years old, but you know, like I said, I, it, it felt more every man that he was going to go up against uh, against this, you know, this entity versus, you know, having a guy with ninja skills or magic powers or, mm-hmm. you know. So um, the the whole Miller thing <clears throat> was fantastic. But, yeah, I mean, the writing was was very, very smart. Um, but yet, like, the relationship between Don and Michelle wasn't. So the writing's very smart overall, okay? But the Don-Michelle relationship and stuff felt very real because it's, like it, it's like the author softened up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on, on the you know in really intelligent writing. let's not to say it wasn't intelligent it just felt a little more heartfelt so it's kind of like you, you got that that don is a is a really bright guy and and you know very good at what he does in his field and, and you know it all comes across as very smart but then he talks about michelle and he just kind of loves michelle and it becomes like a gentler feel whenever he's you know when he's talking about her so it kind of had that like this guy might be and obviously he's not in the book, but you know, this guy might be like a college professor and all day long, he's speaking really, really intelligently. And then he goes home and he just says, hey, you know, hi honey, I missed you. You know what I mean? That type mm-hmm. of like just a switch, like a real person would. So I think that that was done very well as well.
2: Yeah. He wrote for the situation very well. I think not only with relationships, but with everything, like you see Don Miller in his work and, and suddenly he's, you know, definitely more authoritative, by far more authoritative than he is in his relationship with his wife you know then you see him down at the bar talking to someone about these things that are freaking him out and you see that vulnerability and that, that fright so yeah he just
1: wrote for the
2: situation in a very authentic way
1: all right so we can't say much about this next question i'm going to ask so this is just going to be like a quick what did you, did you what did you think about the ending
2: again it felt right for what he was going for yeah it's tough to say <laughs> it's tough to talk about it too much but i think he wrote the ending that would be the most satisfying or at least the most like the less the least disappointing i guess it's tough to say but you understand what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. any ending beside that would be somewhat disappointing
1: i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah i thought it was perfect and that's the only reason i asked is i want to get your feel on it so yeah i i I think you're right i think it was the ending that that it had to be
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and i really i really liked it so it was very uh Very good. I mean, it's, it kicked off great and ended great with a lot of good stuff in between. All right. So the book was overwhelmingly about these like ancient beings and stuff, you know, and uh, I don't know. I mean, so do you think there's people who really buy that, that, that like they buy into that type of mentality about like ancient beings and stuff? Yeah. I mean, something along those lines, they don't necessarily have to be ancient, but do you think there's people actually running around, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that buy this stuff, like really buy it. (laughs) Well, all
2: right. So, um, I guess I could tell you about, all right. So there's the closest I have is an experience I had back in like 2008. I went out to San Francisco, the Bay area to, uh, you know, spend a couple weeks hanging out with friends out there and, uh, a friend of a friend I, I ended up hanging out with a lot actually. And, um, this dude was really big into stuff like, uh, numerology and, um, a lot of occult stuff, and so he he was a member of. I don't remember. I wish I remember what what it was called. But there was this uh, in Oakland, or no, it was like the East Bay, not necessarily Oakland, but the suburbs out there. Uh, this this he was a member of this um, kind of whatever, not religious thing, but anyway, like a I don't even know what to call it, but anyway, like a cult, not an, not a cult, but like an occult kind of um, group. And, um, since I was crashing at his place a couple of times, um, he asked if I wanted to go along to some of the, like to these meetings that he was going to. And, uh, I mean, a lot of it is your basic, like pagan beliefs and, 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 and stuff like that. And so lacking anything else to do, I went along to, I think one or two of his meetings and, um, the one I went to actually ended up being (laughs) out of luck. There was actually a, a wedding ceremony that I got to attend and, um it was the whole thing with like you know they they're dressed in these robes and and um where you know like they have these swords and all these rituals and stuff and like I think someone was naked at one point like it was like everything that you 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 hear people joke about like happened and they took it very seriously and they had this big library of like you know thousands of books of all this different occult information so uh to a degree I think that people really do get into that I don't know about like thinking about portals to other dimensions and stuff like that but like i think to some degree there is like a mysticism around stuff like that 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 exists that is probably way more common than we think
1: it's just so goddamn weird i mean like i get numerology <laughs> i'm not i'm not a believer or you know practitioner or whatever but i get things like the golden ratio and you know that there's some stuff there that you could almost explain away scientifically but I just like it's like anything else. Like, you know, at what point do you, you know, you read all these books and there's always like obviously a lot of, and when I say fiction, obviously it's all fiction, but I mean like this really fictional fiction versus like realistic fiction. And, And you have to like ask yourself at some point, like, how many people are there that believe in, you know, werewolves or the Lovecraftian? Uh, ancient beings, you know. So, is there some basis in reality? And when I say that, not is there really, you know, these Lovecrafty and ancient beings, but is there enough people out there that that buy the reality that for them it's kind of realistic fiction? Well, yeah, and I, I think that falls
2: into. I was going to say two categories, but I'm going to go ahead and say three, um, because obviously there's actual like people that believe in God, um. So, I mean, to a degree that that kind of fits into this category of is it's a belief in something that you can't define um, mm. or that that you can't prove. And <laughs> so uh, there's those people. Then there's the crackpots who believe it, but that's because they have some sort of chemical imbalance or just, you know, insane. Uh, but then there's got to be the other people, like you said, like the real like the centered people who who also have a belief in things like werewolves and Stuff like that. Um and yeah, I ha- I have to imagine that they're out there. Um
1: Okay, so here's here's the whole thing. <clears throat> My whole question was defeated, made to sound stupid when you brought up God. So there you go, end of conversation. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. Everything is yeah, kind of Well, I think
1: I think with you know, without getting you know overtly religious, but <clears throat> I'm not much of a believer. I mean, we've had this conversation before, okay, but like, you hear someone say God, and in my mind, it's it's so frequent and it's so often that I just kind of accept it for what it is. So if someone said, you know, thank Cthulhu, I'd be like, oh, what a weirdo. I wonder if he's joking or not. But someone says thank God, and I go, well, okay, this person's thanking their, their deity for, you know, whatever. So they treat it very differently. But, yeah, I guess that there's not a whole lot of difference there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it boils down to a belief in something that, has, I mean, UFOs fucking ghosts really any of that stuff it's all it's all the same like impulse i be- in my in my opinion it's all the same impulse that makes you want to believe in something that's greater than or 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 different than um what you are yourself so i think it's a bunch of you know, insecure people is what i'm trying to say <laughs>
1: Yeah. You brought up an interesting point. So there's, you know, and I think you're right. There's the, you know, the, the believers, the crackpots and then the logical people. So like in the story, you know, like, like Don Miller could be a believer, you know, he's involved in archeology span and, you know, his wife does these things, you know, so someone like that would be an educated believer and have, you know, assuming these were real people, some like real things that they found or encountered, but here's the thing. So, I think life's just better as one of those crackpots, though. Like, how much cooler and more adventurous is it if you're the crackpot that believes that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's there's less of a burden of like, yeah, cause like, um if you're if you're an educated person who also has a belief like that, there's the burden of like having to explain it. But if you're a crackpot, I mean. I mean it's all like fun. It's like the ignorant ignorance is bliss thing. Like it's just a it's a fun ride. Well,
1: there you go. So, I guess we can get back on 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 topic about the croning huh? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so um yeah, I guess we should kind of keep it on track. Do you want do you want to kick off the uh, the wrap-ups?
1: I'd love to. Um it's going to be a little bit of a reiteration of of what I said um earlier. Uh and, and I want to mention too, a special thanks to Chris Deal, who, who turned us onto this book, suggested we read it and then uh, and then helped us get a digital copy of it um, to, to look at. The, incidentally, the Kindle copy came out today the day we're recording this. so it's now available for people to buy on Kindle. Um, but yeah, so thanks, Chris. So I went into this, not even really knowing what it was about, and not having any expectations. Uh, started off, read the Rumble stuff, thought this is kind of cool. Then, you know, I had some doubts in the next couple of sections and stuff, Um, but overall I was very pleasantly surprised, so um, again, not my kind of thing. I've never really read any Lovecraft, Um, just not the type of stuff that I typically enjoy, but um, Laird Baron managed to make this um, interesting enough and creepy enough. That although it's not my uh, my cup of tea, um, you know the, the chills I got from this alone I give, weren't weren't four stars. I, I really liked it, uh, especially for for having you know the expectation that I wouldn't based on the type of, of story it was.
2: Cool. Yeah, I'm just gonna kind of touch on the points that I thought were were really good about it. Like I said before, um, really creepy. Uh, there were parts that really freaked me out. He brought he brought the scary stuff in a good way, um, but again. <clears throat> it was very smartly written had great great um development of that like i said the mythology of these creatures that he was writing about and and woven in with um the the lives of these people which he wrote in a very realistic way so even though there were some things that i thought i'd like to see a little bit more of like i could have stood to have more of the scariness maybe less of like the there was a lot of exposition towards the end of like what was actually going on, which is fine because it, it, it was a nice ending. It was a good way to wrap everything up. But um, I felt like the horror really melted away once um, we started understanding everything that was really going on. All things said, it was a really good book, and um, I liked it a lot, so I'm going to go three and a half stars.
1: Very cool. All right. So there's our wrap on the croning. Um, I think I may be looking into getting, uh, I know, uh, Laird Baron has a couple of collections. I'm thinking I may have to pick one of those up and read some of his shorts too. Cause the guy's, uh, definitely interesting enough to keep an eye out on, eye out for on Liv- something. <laughs> Lives lunch hours. I'm telling you, man, I'm going to, I'm going to put that together. So, <laughs> um, that would also mean I need to get caught up on reading for the show before I have free lunch hours to read mm. other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So, um, uh, time to move into kind of our freeform section. We're going to kick it off with, uh, with another another appearance of uh, what's, again, you know, I know Rob mentioned this, but it's becoming one of my favorite segments. It's uh, Skip Papersley with Book News.
0: This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Book News, Suzanne Jacoby Hale, the author of Shades of Grey, is whining because her book is being confused with Fifty Shades of Grey by Snow Queen's Ice Dragon, and she's making money off of it. Hale's story of her work as a dropout prevention teacher in an out-of-control inner-city school is getting good reviews and sales due to the mix-up, but that's not good enough. Hale said, quote, I'm sure Ice Cream Mummy Masher's book about being grey is good, but she needs an original title. In other news, Nora Roberts' home in Keedysville, Maryland recently burned down. While the 61-year-old author and her husband were on a trip getting gelato, they noticed that the house was ablaze. Book News is happy to report no one was injured in the fire, but Robert's new work, Angels Dancing, the fourth story in her Circle Trilogy, was lost. Book News would also like to report it had nothing to do with this. Seriously. Finally, the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. The Witness by Nora Roberts is on its way out, slipping from four to five. John Grisham's Calico Joe won't say no, and he drops to four. David Baldacci's crime story, The Innocent, comes out at number three. The Wind Through the Keyhole by Stephen King lets off some steam to drop to number two. Finally, Suki Stackhouse is back on top with Charlene Harris' new work, Deadlocked. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off.
2: Alright, once again that was Skip Papersley doing booked news. Thanks to Skip for setting that in. Um I really <laughs> I just really like that that uh that segment. And I, the thing that I had to ask him was how does he time that music so perfectly? Because it like it ends like right at the exact right point. And it's not like he does the uh the same amount you know, like it's not like he just timed it out where he does the same amount of, of talking for each thing. So I was like, how do you do this, man? And he told it to me and he explained it to me, but I'm going to leave it a mystery for everybody else.
1: I was going to say it's kind of like watching all those magician expose shows that's nowhere near as cool now that you know. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. now I'm
2: like, oh, yeah, I could have done that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> any anyway, rate, I look forward to hearing more Skip Papers Lee in the future. All right, so it's been a while since we've uh, we've done a giveaway, but something uh, came up that we thought was just worthy. So I'm going to give you kind of the the short the short backstory on this. Back in late October of last year, um, we reviewed DB Cox' Unaccustomed Mercy. Um, at the time, it was not available as a digital copy for sale. Um, it was only available uh, through Amazon, and uh, I believe it was a trade paperback, but. Um, db cox has teamed with palavia and has just released unaccustomed mercy in the kindle form making it easily available to all of you kindle users so we thought it would be a good idea we're going to give away five copies so we're going to have some kind of facebook retweet twitter type thing so if you're not already following us on facebook uh, make sure you do that uh, in the next day or two that's uh, facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter, we're at Booked Podcast. So a uh, great book. Um, for anybody who may have read it and may have actually picked up a paper copy after hearing our review, I understand there are three new stories available <clears throat> in the uh, digital version. So I'm looking forward to reading those over the next couple of days. That's right. And while you're following stuff, I'm going to tell you a little bit about,
2: I did a little bit of a brief restructure of the website um, to focus on. We had a couple of people ask us how to get a hold of um, episodes if they didn't want to go through iTunes so we threw together a, a quick page on the book podcast website the slash subscribe if you go there um, there's a, a list of different ways you can get it you can get episodes um, we give the feed link right there so if you want to subscribe through like a, a feed reader or something like that the link's right there we also give you a direct link to iTunes to subscribe at iTunes a link to Stitcher if you want to download Stitcher for your smartphone. And then um, a list of all the, the episodes that you can get right from the website, broken down by category. So if you just want to read, listen to book reviews, or just want to listen to author interviews, it's all in a big list right there. So um, it's on the front page. You can click on subscribe and go to all the different ways you can find us. Um, yeah, and check it out.
1: Hey, you know what I noticed was missing from that page is that option where we drive them around while they listen to an episode. Yeah, well. How to do that is is not on here.
2: <laughs> I'm still trying to build a calendar where people can book time time slots. Livius has a new car, so uh, I think he's going to be the one that's driving people around.
1: <laughs> I'm game. Let's do it. All right, on to other news. Um, this has come up over the last couple of days and again requires a little bit uh, of explanation. So um, we know that a, you know, a good portion of people who listen to this uh, to this podcast are writers. So it seems like this is very, very important news to them. I was thinking about it. And as a reader, this is important news too. So um, it, it came out that uh, undead press um, also known as as open casket. So it is open. Casket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Press. Yeah. So recently, so there was a, anyway, there's a few authors that have come out to kind of speak out against um, the, this publisher and, and some of the the practices that they, uh, that they, you know, use in publishing people's work. So um, the, the guy who runs his name is Anthony G G Gregorio. Um, and apparently most recently, Anthony has taken, uh, it took Mandy de Geite, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, took her story. And, and I, okay. So as a publisher and an editor, my understanding from reading these various various articles is someone submits a story. um, I choose to either accept it or reject it. And maybe I can reject it and say, Hey, you know, I really didn't like this ending. Maybe if you do something with the ending, you know, I I can publish it. And the author has the option to make those changes. Um, Other than that, my understanding is the editor will fix any typos, any, um, you know, just, just weird sentence structures. So very non integral stuff to the story. Well, apparently Mr. Gian Gregorio took it upon himself to change some, pretty big portions of of this woman's story yeah without um
2: in a way where she didn't find out until it was actually in print so it wasn't like he consulted with her or or anything he basically said we're good to go and then when she actually looked at it uh in the final print edition like she didn't get galleys or any kind of proofs or anything just actually had to get um published copies and when when she did that's when she realized that that uh he'd gone through and kind of hacked it up
1: so um, one of the things that he <laughs> that happened, and and this is this may sound familiar for early listeners um, to the show, is uh, I don't think he actually changed. I mean, he changed it, and I could see why. But so this is an editor of a of a, of a you know publisher it publishes books, lots of books. Uh, changed the the name of the story from "She Makes Me Smile" to "She Makes Me Smile," which is the make is m-a-k-e apostrophe s <laughs> um which uh you know i don't know 12 nope. year olds could could All figure right. out yeah so yeah so uh we had a similar story we mentioned here if uh, anybody remembers it was axel tayari's um story was titled uh titled poorly
2: oh yeah light like to starve by yep I'll and like... <laughs> uh do you know who that publisher was rob oh it was uh Whatever that this dude's guy. name is, Tony Geo Geometry or whatever his name was.
1: Yes, this guy Anthony Gian Gregorio. So, um, some of our earlier episodes, I think it was, uh, I think maybe I know uh, Christopher Dwyer mentioned him or mentioned that there was a press he was working with. Blah blah blah, and, mm. and Axel mentioned it, uh, and Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas was also involved yeah. in that publication. So this stuff isn't new, but um, a lot of it has popped up and become the forefront. So. Um, do you know why this is as important to readers as it is to, to writers, Rob? Well, <laughs> I guess from my, my
2: perspective as a reader more than a writer, um, I'd like to know that what I'm reading and what I'm judging an author against is actually what they wrote. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of makes sense. Like when I read something, I don't think, oh, yeah, you know, it's probably well, actually sometimes I have thought, well, this might have been something that the editors changed. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, like if I'm reading something. I'm thinking that this is the author did it on purpose and I'm judging them against it. And it's going to make me decide whether I want to read more of their stuff or not.
1: I mean, this guy took the Liberty to, um, to, uh, I'm just going to kind of, for those, um, took a character that was, uh, Um, nondescript sexually and made it into a boy um, gave a gave the the you know the kind of friend the ambiguous friend a name and even added and I don't know because I haven't read the story um, either the original or it's edited version but added kind of a rapey feel to it which can also be bad in a story that's not supposed to have a rapey feel
2: yeah he really well I guess he really did rape that story
1: yeah. So um, so one of the reasons we're not going to go into it very much um, this week is because we're actually working on um, on a segment for our next episode where we're going to have um, an exclusive. And that's going to be a conversation with one of the authors who's published by uh, by this gentleman, for lack of a better term.
2: Anthony Gio Giacomo, which is, whatever his name is.
1: Yep. Um, by the way, and I, I have to credit this or credits due, um, some of the stuff I I have pulled up right now. One of them is from uh, Kelly Dunlap and uh, uh, her blog. And uh, it actually just, just caught me. I'm going to read this when she reacted by expressing her dis- disbelief. He turned into a complete douche rocket. No <laughs> douche rocket is way too nice for him and completely mean to douche rocket rockets worldwide. Douche <laughs> rocket. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah, I don't hear douche rocket very often. Yeah, that just jumped off the page I and mean, was kind of standing <laughs> for free. So, um, so yeah, so we're working on something uh, that uh, hopefully will work out and will be very cool for our next episode. Yeah, so check
2: back and uh, for the ongoing tales of uh, of a douche rocket.
1: Um, speaking of things that you're expecting, one thing and you might get another. Um, do, you, do you know what, what other thing we haven't had on in in at least a month now? Um, is it one of mine and Sean Ferguson's
2: favorite? Segments.
1: Absolutely. Patterson. Watch Patterson. Watch. So that was (laughs) just, I'm pretending that didn't happen. All right. So we're a little late on this one. Um, basically because this launched the day we published our last, uh, our, our last episode. So, um, James Patterson's uh, newest release is out. Um, this would be the, uh, what we're going to call the May release because there's (laughs) been one every month this year. Um, It's 11th Hour. Now, not only is that a clever title, meaning that you're getting towards the deadline of something, but um, it's also the 11th book in a series of the Women's Murder Club. There you go. Yeah. So, oh, Maxine Petro may have had something to do with this, too. Little name, bottom of the book. She's in the fine print. She is in the fine print. But you know what I noticed that was interesting? Um, None of the reviews, because I read most of them yesterday i'm sure there's more up today but i couldn't find anything too worthy of reading from the reviews on there but um so the kindle edition is 1499 the hardcover edition is uh well see this is kind of weird because you know they have that new from where you can order it from them or you can order it from someone else so it's kind of odd because there's a hardcover edition for 1676 um Then there's the new from, which is 1079, which is fine. That's somebody who's already read it or stole a box off a truck or whatever. But then there's a paperback (laughs) version listed, but only from not from Amazon, only from the vendor partners Hmm.
2: for 15
1: for 1509. It's kind of
2: weird. Yeah, because you don't usually see a simultaneous release of hardcover and paperback.
1: Yeah. So it's a little that's a little odd. Hmm. So I don't know. But anyway, yeah, there's and there's there's a picture. It's it's a totally different color when you actually click on the link to it so yeah it's available so there's three ways for you to uh, ignore reading this book
2: that's right so patterson watch back better as good as ever uh do we have anything else to talk about with
1: this book well i'm going to read the synopsis okay cool <coughs> which is mercifully shorter than some of the other ones Lindsay boxer is pregnant at last exclamation point we all know what that means But her work doesn't slow for a second. When millionaire Chaz Smith is mercilessly gunned down, she discovers that the murder weapon is linked to the deaths of four of San Francisco's most untouchable criminals. And it was taken from her own department's evidence locker. Anyone could be the killer, even her closest friends. Lindsay is called next to the most bizarre crime scene she's ever seen. Two bodiless heads elaborately displayed in the garden of a world famous actor. Another head is unearthed in the garden, and Lindsay realizes that the ground could hide hundreds of victims. A reporter launches a series of vicious articles about the cases, and Lindsay's personal life is laid bare, but this time she has no one to turn to, especially not Joe. 11th Hour is the most shocking, most emotional, and most thrilling women's murder club novel ever. Ever? Ever. That sounds a lot like
2: a Dexter book. Like the yeah? Heads, the head's like... Mm-hmm. um you know displayed and there might be more heads and stuff it makes me it, it's a very big dexter novel feel probably not nearly as cool
1: yeah um i yeah maybe i don't know mm-hmm. i i've got to tell you though <laughs> if i had to read this book or the second book in the 50 shades of gray trilogy i'd probably opt for the mm. 50 shades of gray
2: wow yeah. all right still uh yeah you know I was talking to someone. that I knew we were going to end up talking about Fifty Shades oh. of Grey. I was talking to someone at, at work who had uh, read the whole trilogy. And um, I was like, yeah, here's the thing that happened. Like, um, I found myself thinking about um, there was a specific situation. So in the Fifty Shades of Grey book, um, she's very enthusiastically describing one of his cars, which is an Audi R8. Um, anybody who doesn't know, that's like a really expensive car. And I saw one, um, I saw an Audi R8 in the parking lot of my work one day, and it was gray, and immediately I thought of Fifty Shades of Gray, and I was really, so I was telling my coworker about this, and he's like, yeah, you can't wait to read the second book, can you? And I was like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. But I did tell someone at work not to roll their eyes at me. (laughs) Because there were going to be spankings. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right. Patterson watched dovetails very nicely into fifty shades of gray I
1: guess yeah all right Liv, we got anything else um the, you know the only other thing of interest I saw this on uh was entertainment um, entertainmentweekly dot com um, via Twitter I don't actually go to entertainment weekly for anything <laughs> um, Amazon released a list of the best red cities um, in America so that's not um that's not people read most about them it's a uh, basically that they purchase more print and digital books, magazines, and newspapers per capita. So there's, uh, there's 20, um, 20 cities listed. We're not going to go through all of them. Um, but, you know, from one of the previous episodes we talked about, I totally expected California to be like the top six. Because wasn't it like two in one people there? It's yeah. like four books a week. So um, Alexandria, Virginia, that's where you want to be uh, if you want the best read people.
2: A couple of things I'm thinking about here. Um, first of all, Virginia shows up three times. you got Alexandria, Arlington, and Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, number one, number seven, and 20 respectively. And one thing I will say about that is um, anybody who knows anything about Washington, D.C. knows that people don't actually want to live there, um, but there's a lot of work there. So there's a lot of government people who typically need to have more education, higher education than um, you know people working in other fields. So what I would say is people who are either in school or in a profession uh, who work in the D.C. area most likely will live in Virginia because it's a little bit cheaper and a little bit nicer. So that might explain why like Alexandria and Arlington are in the top 10.
1: Well, and and let's not forget too, this includes magazines and newspapers too. So I'm guessing if you're um, politically motivated or your career is involved in politics, um, newspapers are probably a pretty important resource for you on on a regular basis. So
2: yeah. So wow. not a big surprise that that Alexandria, Arlington, and Washington DC are in the top ten together. Some of the other cities though were a little bit of a surprise to me. <laughs> um, Ann Arbor, Michigan? Um, yeah. Well, I guess per capita, I mean, Ann Arbor, Michigan, from what I understand, is a big college area, so that's not a huge surprise. I was thinking more like Miami. <laughs> no, yeah. That's Salt good, Lake yeah.
1: City. They're buying a lot of um uh the Book of Mormon, Mormon. out there. Mormon Bibles, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's a it's well, I don't know. I guess it's not surprising. Um, I mean, what's the biggest city on here? I guess it's Miami, right? I mean, there's nothing else that really stands in Seattle Orlando. I mean, you know, Chicago, New York, L.A., none of those are showing up. But then again, it's per capita. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. how they measure that if they drew the line at, at, at an age? You know, if it's over 12 or if it's just purchases in general or in what, what they're basing it against, you know. So, again, like anything else, I'm sure if you dug into it, you could find some, you know, see there's some inconsistencies in the data collection or, or some explanations as to why something is the way it is. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of interesting to see that uh, neither one of the towns we live in are high up on that list.
2: Oh, did you see the list of little, like, interesting tidbits at the bottom? Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. top the list for ordering the most travel books. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Mm -hmm. boulder's got a bunch of fat people yeah that's not a
2: big well that actually i don't know why boulder would have a bunch of fat people
1: they're in the mountains don't have to go hiking and shit sure that's books in health fitness and dieting it didn't say books for fat people
2: alexandria virginia most romance books
1: in cambridge massachusetts uh the most budding entrepreneurs these locals top the list for ordering the most books in the business and investing category is anybody surprised by that Um, I am I don't know Is there a reason am I missing something Isn't Harvard there Sure That's a college right right? Oh come on man I did notice because I was actually going to say That number two and three Berkeley I think that The thing I most know Berkeley for Is college and the same thing with Cambridge So Yeah
2: big big college Big really smart really rich people
1: Ivy League shit Dude, it's cuz these comment. people can afford to pay $15 for the new James Patterson Kindle copy.
2: Yeah, I want to see the
1: <laughs> I want to see the list that um that like
2: the torrent people release of uh of the places where people download the most books
1: illegally. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to go with the list of cities most James Patterson books are purchasing cuz that would be interesting too per capita. Would, yeah, we should really get
2: like I wonder if Amazon has, like, a giant file that's, like, all the metrics, and then you just, like, you know, like, we could kind of sort through and see, find out really funny stuff, like, you know, who buys the most um, 50 Shades, how much 50 Shades of Grey is being sold to prisoners and stuff like that. I'm sure there's some pretty interesting information.
1: Uh, So you're saying we should hack the Amazon computers?
2: Uh, Well, not us, but if there's any listeners out there who are really um, good at hacking want to get that information or actually mr amazon if you're listening um you want to share that with us we'd be really interested to see the full the yeah, full just report e-
1: just email over that that file it can't <laughs> be more than like 300 kilobytes right you can put it in our
2: amazon cloud drive mr
1: mr amazon that's right so um i want to tell the folks what we're doing next week
2: next week is a is a special episode next week is something that we really haven't done before um okay Olivia's just corrected me, but I'm going to cut it out. Um, We have done it before, but not often. This will be the second time we've done kind of a split episode um, for a couple of reasons. So one of the reasons is just because we've got a lot of stuff coming at us right now. We want to make sure that we don't, um, you know, push things off for too long. So we're going to kind of pile things up. uh, And we're doing a split episode where we're reviewing two books. But there's another reason, because the authors of both books are actually doing a reading together in the near future. So we thought it would be nice to... uh, to tie them together in, in that type of theme for the for the upcoming reading
1: right so next week we'll be doing flashover by gordon highland who um, some of you may have heard on the show back during the warm to mound sessions and phil jordan's praise of motherhood so i'm looking forward to reviewing both of those
2: that's right and if we were any kind of good podcasters we'd tell you exactly when they their reading which is called Shit authors say is going to be taking place Uh, I think in Kansas city, but, um, I don't have that information in
1: front of me. So, so one of us is a good podcaster and one of us isn't (laughs) May 24th, sir. Kansas city, right? That is correct.
2: We will put a link to the information on the post for this episode. If you are in the Kansas city area and you want to see, I think it's Gordon Highland, Phil Jordan, Caleb Ross, right?
1: And Brandon Teets, Hampton Stevens and Holly Hayes. So, uh, it's a Shame we can't make it down to Kansas City. It sounds like it would be uh, like it would be a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool reading. Yeah, it's kind of a big gig. Mm-hmm. Now, they have a follow up one too that I have no
2: information on. <laughs> so yeah, so again, next week we're going to be reviewing "Praise of Motherhood" and "Flashover," and uh, it's in leading up to the "Shit Authors Say" event in Kansas on
1: May twenty fourth. Let's not forget that if all the stars lined up correctly, we will have that exclusive from an open casket living dead press author.
2: That's right. Some so. of you,
1: some of you like, like actual devoted listeners probably know who we're talking about too. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. So big episode next week. Um looking forward to,
1: to getting that on the books. Who says bigger is not better. That's right.
2: Well, actually littler. some people did
1: littler, yeah, yeah. littler podcasts, <laughs> say that. right.
2: podcasts say that. That's right. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And
1: I'm Livia Snudden. Keep reading.
0: If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied, and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs. If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then all follow.